0: This is Deirdre Walling, mother of a free solo climber, Alex Honnold, and you're listening to The Soul of Life.
1: Rivers were catching on fire.
0: Today on The Soul of Life, I speak with Tiara Curry.
1: We're in an extinction crisis, and a lot of people don't realize that.
0: We know that there is a direct link between human well-being and the health of the natural environment.
1: Our health and well-being is tied to the health and well-being of our wildlife populations.
0: When I heard about Tierra Curry's ecological conservation work, it wasn't from reading a scholarly article about forest bathing or how much green space there is per square mile. I heard about Tierra because she had the brass to use her own body as a way to start conversations about protecting natural resources.
1: It's a contest to see who can fully immerse themselves in the most rivers between summer solstice and fall equinox.
0: Last summer, Curry, a senior scientist at the Center for Biological Diversity, immersed herself in 108 rivers across the U.S. It was so mucky. In order to bring attention to the state of water quality and its vital role in our own health and sustainability.
1: I would see meat processing plants or mines or chemical factories. I would just be swimming in the pesticides.
0: Curry's muck raking wasn't all slime and grime.
1: Some of the places that I expected just to be completely filthy. We're
0: just beautiful. Tiera has a love for nature that goes deeper than the average environmental slogan on a bumper sticker. I mean, sure, we all care about whales. We all care about the gray wolf. We want to end climate crisis. But Tierra Curry cares about mollusks mollusks. In the mysteries of the monarch butterfly migration.
1: Nobody knows how the monarch butterflies find their way back to Mexico every winter. I love those mysteries.
0: I'm still struck by the mystery of how cats find their way back to their houses, because if they can solve the monarch butterfly issue, then they'll figure out cats, right? We discuss why we need new ways to think about who we are as a society, as a people. Are we just producers and consumers? Or are we more than the jobs we do in the things we have. And how do we stay hopeful and motivated in an age of climate fatigue? Give a hoot, don't pollute, it becomes paralyzing. Welcome to the Soul of Life, I'm Keith Miller, and this is episode 5 of season 4, Clean Rivers and Clean Health.
1: In southeastern Kentucky, my uncle got some dynamite. We would go dynamite the deep hole and it would cause all the fish to come flying out of the water and we would eat them.
0: There was no definition of the mind that anybody had. I'm Keith Miller. That's really weird. Can we swear on this? Something you hear at a swing party. (laughs) (laughs) Something that sounds fun. We don't treat trauma. We treat the imprint of traumatic experience. I stood on top of the Olympic podium, Mm
1: -hmm. very incomplete, not happy, and never ever thinking that I was good enough. Donald watched his older brother be destroyed that way so he had to exile all the sensitive parts of
0: him. Free soloing is climbing without ropes. Alex was born for climbing.
1: Cannabis use disorder is real. There's no question about it. The,
0: the broccoli growers of America are livid every time that they listen to this part of your podcast. What
1: happens before sex? What happens during sex? What happens after sex? Compassion is contagious. We
0: gotta have cake. Oh my god, I told him bisexual and that's why I gotta be. He's incredibly successful by just talking shit about people's fried rice. This is the soul of life. Hey, it's Keith Miller. I just want you to know that I've created a bunch of inexpensive and free courses on marriage improvement, mindfulness, and stress reduction. Just head on over to souloflifeshow.com forward slash courses and check out the cool resources there. Again, that's souloflifeshow.com forward slash courses. Welcome, Tiara Curry. How are you today?
1: Good, how are you doing?
0: I'm doing really well. It's, it's exciting to speak with you. I read about you actually uh, in the Washington Post recently, and I understand that you work for a place called the Center for Biological Diversity, and you're a campaign director there, senior scientist. Um, today I want to talk to you about your adventure. I guess it's something you've been Really working towards your whole life, but uh, that culminated in, uh, in this news story, which at least highlighted you jumping into 108 different rivers across the country to get to know them really well. And it sounds like you did. Tell me a little bit about that to kick it off.
1: I'm really glad you used the verb river jumping as opposed to river swimming because it absolutely is jumping. Um, It's a contest to see who can fully immerse themselves in the most rivers between summer solstice and fall equinox. And so some of the rivers are so gross (laughs) that there's no way I would swim in them. So literally, I'd jump in and out as fast as I possibly can. But when I wrote this piece for the Washington Post... They were like, "Well, jumping doesn't really make sense? It needs to say swimming, so thats swimming's a bit of a misnomer. Like some of them I didn't take any strokes at all. I literally just jumped in and then got out as fast as I could.
0: And tell me why that is what was the what were the conditions that you noticed in the rivers? Why did you want to get out as fast as you could?
1: So, well, just to back up a little bit, the to find river access in this country can be really difficult because a lot of riverfront acreage is private or industrial or urban, and there just isn't a safe place to get in and out. There's not a lot of public docks, a lot of even boat docks, you're not allowed to swim around them. So, you have to have a boat to be able to access the river. So, before I even would head out for the weekend to look for rivers to get in, I would spend a lot of time poring over Google Maps and Googling things like public access, river swimming, canoe launch, just the whole fishing site, anything to try to find a place to get in the river. And sometimes scrolling around on Google Maps, I would see like meat processing plants or mines or chemical factories and know that I didn't want to get in in that particular area. But sometimes I'm just literally looking at a paper map and following the river, looking for any place where where I could get it. And some of those places were total muck. Like I would lose my shoes in the river, the riverbank because it was so mucky. Other places were um, so agricultural that the crops would run right up to the edge of the river. And so I would be looking at like a sea of soybean and corn or tobacco, knowing that they were heavily pesticide sprayed. Mm. And that if I got in, I would just be swimming in the pesticide. So it's I definitely don't recommend that anyone enter this contest lightly because who knows what I was exposed to this summer. But on the other hand, some places were just so stunningly beautiful. And I had no idea they were going to be so beautiful, especially like I grew up in southeastern Kentucky where there's a lot of coal mining. And historically, there was even more than there was now. And I was so surprised this summer that a lot of the rivers are clean again. Um, some of the places that I expected just to be completely filthy, like when I was growing up, the coal companies pretty much ruined the the creek behind my house. So I, I was expecting a lot of that. And some of them were just beautiful. Um, a lot of communities have gone out of their way to create kayak trails or canoe trails and blue ways to try to encourage tourists to come visit and and it's working. So that was that was great mm. to see in Eastern Kentucky.
0: That's great. I that that's what I hope to hear from you and, and and hope to talk about because we we do hear a lot of gloom and doom and rightfully so we should be active in and promoting um conservatorship and 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 um being good custodians of of nature, right? And and taking care of it. At the same time, like in my field of mental health, I'm always you know, like aware of how often, you know, like we need to hear positive messages in order just to feel good about and stay motivated and stay in the game of life. Right. So like, you know, especially when you, if you know, you have, if you have kids or I think about our kids, like how, um, you know, how the messaging, you know, how do you balance our mental health and, and staying positive with being an activist? That's a question I want to talk about, but let's get back to the muck for a little bit. Like, (laughs) why would you, why would you do this? Why would you jump in in rivers and put your body and life in harm's way?
1: Well, for me, I mean ju- choosing to jump in these rivers one comes from a place of privilege. I like I drove around to rivers, I got in, I got out, I drove away. Some communities don't have that privilege. This is their drinking water. They are completely stuck with this water and we need to do things to improve it and the situation is the same for endangered species and imperiled freshwater species that live there. Um, freshwater species are going extinct at a thousand times the background rate because of all of the insults that we're doing to our rivers. And so the endangered fish and crayfish and mussels that live in these rivers don't get to drive home and take a shower. They Their lives, their survival depends on the quality of these rivers, and so I wanted to show that. I wanted to show that there are beautiful, amazing places with all kinds of different species, but there's also a lot of places that are really a disaster, even though we have the Clean Water Act and the Endangered Species Act. And part of it is agriculture, part of it is fossil fuels, and part of it is just an ethic where... I just, I can't believe how much trash I saw in rivers this summer. Like I I was in grade school in the 80s and there was a lot of give a hoot, don't pollute messaging. And as an environmental activist, I would think that telling people not to pollute, like, no, I would be like, no, fight the fossil fuel industry, fight factory farms. Pollution is a minor insult, but I saw so much plastic and food wrappers and masks and just everything in rivers this summer. So I think we need, we do need to go back to it, don't pollute and fight the fossil fuel industry message.
0: Mm, mm. It's personal, isn't it? I'll I'll get back to that question because our, our County where we live in Montgomery County, Maryland and some other counties across the country uh, enacted uh, a, a five cent bag tax on plastic bags to reduce, so uh, reduce plastic waste, I want to ask you if that—if you think that's working. But um, tell me about your position at the Center for Biological Diversity and what you do as a scientist there.
1: So yeah, I'm a senior scientist. I'm a biologist by training. I um, did my grad work on amphibians, on tadpoles, which was wonderful because I love amphibians. And then I started at the center and realized that mollusks are in, in even more trouble than amphibians. So I spent a lot of years working to gain protections for freshwater mussels and snails and crayfish. Um, But then we realized that working on species at an individual level, while that's kind of the way the policy system is set up and it's necessary, it isn't as effective as trying to get the message out about extinction. We're in an extinction crisis and a lot of people don't realize that. So now I'm a full-time extinction campaigner. I run our Saving Life on Earth campaign, which tries to build a grassroots movement to end extinction and to elevate the extinction crisis to the level of awareness as the climate crisis. Because now, even though there was a ton of money poured into climate denial and trying to make it seem like we're not in a climate crisis, I think most people will accept that we are. But a lot of people aren't aware that, that we're in an extinction crisis and that we need policy level changes to address it. And so I, I do hope we circle back to your mental health question because it's something I wrestle with every day and every talk I give. The global situation is hugely depressing and can feel overwhelming. And and so yeah, I have a lot of thoughts about that. like how to how to yeah. stay motivated and chin up and.
0: Yeah, oh, we'll have to uh, just sort of brainstorm a little bit together. I'll share some ideas that I have, but um, mostly want to hear. Yeah, it's, it's interesting to hear that you you run into that too, and because it is an issue. If if you know if, if we run out of gas and we're not motivated, then we're losing people, and it's and it's a negative message that turns people off. Um. So some some sweet spot of sort of right, and our, our nervous system knows about this sweet spot because it, if if we're too alarmed all the time, or if we're too um, numb then we, you know, we end up with mental health issues. So healthy minds have a balance of kind of resting and then working and resting and working. And sprinting is usually not in the vocabulary of healthy mind, you know, for long terms. Um, But activists usually are in that mode a lot of times in a political fight. So that's a, it's a real interesting sort of, uh, how do you do that as a, as a career and stay healthy your whole life? Um, So why did you start? Um, like, where did? You, when did you know you wanted to be a biologist? And and tell me a little bit about your background growing up in Kentucky.
1: Yes, so I grew up in southeastern Kentucky, which is this amazing, beautiful place in the Appalachian Mountains. There's so many different kinds of birds and salamanders and turtles and frogs and bats. I just grew up sort of in a nature reserve. It wasn't, but it felt like it because I was surrounded by wildlife and. Then the coal mining companies mined the mountain in front of and behind my house. And so I just saw the plants and animals that I had grown accustomed to decline. And the um, we had well water. The, the blasting ruined our water. It turned it orange. So then we were incredibly poor and we didn't have access to water. We had to go to a laundromat because our water was orange. We didn't have money to go to the laundromat. We mm-hmm. didn't. I mean, it was... It was devastating, but it also was very motivating. I was like, this isn't fair. So from a really young age, I just had this sense of whoever did this doesn't have the right to do this to me, my family, or the wildlife. And, and I wanted to make a difference. So I thought that I would go to law school. And then I decided I didn't want to spend all my time behind a computer working on policy. So I became a biologist and I wanted to fight extinction. Which led me back to policy work. <laughs> so mm-hmm. <laughs> ironically, even though I'm a biologist, I'm here behind the computer like everyone else, like fighting policy battles and, and trying to raise awareness. But the the natural world is kind of my sanity. I love I'm a naturalist. I love watching the birds and the butterflies and the bugs and taking pictures of them and looking them up to see who in the heck is that and what is their life like? That's like my solace because Law is so made up and complicated, and it drives me crazy. But I have to engage in it because of the policy battles. But just like learning everything there is to know about an animal, and necessarily everything we don't know and probably never know. Nobody knows how the monarch butterflies find their way back to Mexico every winter. You know, I love I love those mysteries. So that that keeps me motivated. Like a we call it wild love at the Center for Biological Diversity. Just love for the natural world and the plants and animals we share
0: the planet with. I'm still struck by the mystery of how cats find their way back to their, to their houses. We had a, a <laughs> uh, we bought a, a home and the neighbor had her cat. Um, Cause if they can solve the butterfly issue, then they'll figure out cats, right? <laughs> like this cat, um, the neighbor moved about 10 miles, oh, five miles, under five miles away, but still pretty far. And the cat ended up wandering back here to the house. It's like within within a couple of weeks, the cat was back at the house, and that's I think that's crazy. Um, anyway,
1: yeah, to think about just like the different ways that other animals see the world, like if you look at an insect's eyes and how fast they see and the colors they see, like we are in one reality based on our perception and the plants and animals we share the planet with see everything entirely differently. And that's, that's, yeah. re- that's really interesting to think about.
0: Tell me about your experience with dynamite.
1: No, oh no. you did a lot of research. So, <laughs> um, I, I mean, I grew up just incredibly poor and living off the land. My, neither one of my parents went to high school. My mom, um, grew up in Southeastern Kentucky, like finding her own food, growing her own food, and so I ate, we hunted and, and raised food. And my uncle, um, he, when I was really young, I. so, so Southeastern Kentucky is a very different place. Like if you wanted to go buy dynamite today, I don't know where you would do that. But <laughs> right, right. When I was little in the seventies, Southeastern Kentucky was a bit of a, a quote unquote wild west. And so my uncle got some dynamite and, it was this place in the creek, Troublesome Creek. It was called the Deep Hole. And a lot of fish and turtles were in there. And so we would go dynamite the deep hole and it would cause all the fish to come flying out of the water and, you know, we would eat them. And <laughs> this isn't, this isn't something that I'm proud of today. And I hope people still don't do that. Um, but it's, when I was a kid, I thought it was a lot of fun. And, you know, right now I, now I know about endangered species and how imperiled freshwater ecosystems are, but just as a kid in Kentucky, I was learning how to hunt and fish and, sur- right, and survive, right. which is crazy too. Like the most people my age probably didn't have that sort of experience growing up, which is, you know, all in all a good thing, but I did. I, it's just how I grew up.
0: Right, right. Well, I mean, something struck me about hearing that about you telling the story, especially about like strip mining and the way that, like, you know, we're all we're all people, we're all humans, and so any time we encounter somebody in a state or uh, with a trait that's just the opposite of where we are at this point in time, like they probably weren't at that point forever. Like, you know, we're we move through time and space, and like we develop, and so. I feel like when we when we don't extend that sort of imagination to other people who we feel are stuck in a place they shouldn't be, like you know blowing up mountaintops and dumping them in rivers or something, um, my goodness, it seems like it would give you a way of sort of speaking humanly to that person and understanding and working through the complexity of why they're stuck and why we can't agree on something
1: for sure, I definitely because of my background i can see a lot of different perspectives on environmental protection and what other like just Crazy thing about the way I grew up, our sewer ran straight into the creek behind our house and I played in that creek. Like we mm-hmm. ate fish and turtles out of that creek. I spent hours in that creek, but my sewer line went straight into that creek. And, right. and that's disgusting. And that's another thing that has improved so much in eastern Kentucky. Like when I was growing up, there wasn't municipal sewage. There wasn't there wasn't even garbage pickup. We burned our garbage or dumped mm-hmm. it into the creek. And now those, right. that infrastructure is in place.
0: <laughs> right, right. And clearly other parts of the country are still dealing with that on a massive scale in some cities um, that don't have sanita- basic sanitation. Um, but you're right, things have changed a lot. And, and even the Clean Water Act of the 1960s has, has helped a lot. Or has it been sort of chipped away? And have we lost some of the gains from the Clean Water Act, the Clean Air Act?
1: The Clean Water Act has definitely been hugely successful. I mean, at that time, rivers were catching on fire. and That's really interesting to think about that a river could catch on fire. So we have
0: come
1: come a long way, but now there's new threats to rivers from climate change. Like um, a lot of freshwater species, they have set temperatures that they can live and reproduce in. And when the water is too warm, they just can't survive anymore. Juvenile... So freshwater mussels are the most endangered group of organisms in North America. We've already, 70% of them are endangered. We've lost 36 species to extinction. The baby mussels are really sensitive to temperatures. So with climate change, that's going to, that can wreak havoc on on the freshwater flora and fauna. Um, and then pesticide use has just become ubiquitous over the past couple decades. We use so many pesticides in this country and so many of them run into the waterways and we have no idea the synergies between them. So mm. it's just like a chemical soup between pesticides mm. and pharmaceuticals and runoff from urban areas. Um, mm-hmm. It's kind of like a, a stew in, in our rivers. Mm.
0: And, and I was struck also by, I think you you said or somebody mentioned about, when talking about crayfish, if you see crayfish in a in a in a water environment, that that's a really good sign. It's healthy. And I wonder when you said the rivers were really mucky, that does that tell you something about the condition, the health of the river? If there's, if there's mollusks and and mussels in the, in the, the riverbed.
1: So so there's a range of species tolerances. Some species are very tolerant to pollution and some aren't. Um, And that that's true for mollusks as well. But in general, if you're seeing snails, or mussels or crayfish in a creek, yes, it indicates that the water is healthy. And some streams are naturally muddy. It just depends on the stream, but most of them aren't. And so, just silt, like mud off from runoff from farms and lawns, and it fills in the spaces between the rocks on the river bottoms. And those spaces are the homes of the species that live there. So, the little fish called darters and the crayfish and the mussels and the insects, they need the gravel, the rocks, the boulders to have that space. And so just like improper construction sites or off-road vehicles that put mud in the creek, people might not think of that as a driver of extinction, but it's actually one of the biggest drivers of freshwater extinction is just silt and sediment going into rivers. And on the spectrum of causes of extinction that one would be pretty easy to address if we enforced best management practices for logging and construction and off-road vehicles if they stayed on the trails and there were sediment barriers between the trails and the rivers that's it's one it's one of my biggest pet peeves it makes me mm. so angry when i see mud flowing into a creek because that mm-hmm. mud is going to make a freshwater animal homeless and it's it's right. preventable
0: right I'm guessing that the struggle has to be sort of convincing people, right, that you know not to to pay attention, right, because there's it's so the, there's so many issues that people are demanding it to, our attention with, and and if you go out and say, well, look, mud is the as a real big problem, it's got to be a tough sell, right?
1: Absolutely, <laughs> and just there's so many, there's so much construction now. There's so many subdivisions and shopping centers and. When it rains, you can drive by them and see the mud flowing onto the roadways like they might not even have silt fencing or the silt fencing might be knocked down. It's just not it's back to the litter thing, right? It's not something that we have enough education or awareness around that it's a really big problem.
0: Right. Were there any rivers during your uh, your jumping uh, extravaganza that really stood out? You mentioned some of them were really beautiful. What were, what were some of the most memorable?
1: In Elkhorn City, Kentucky, which is far eastern Kentucky, where there used to be a lot of coal mining, they've worked really hard to put in the Russell Fort Blue Waste Trail. And so it's a great story, like up higher in the watershed, they're trying to protect migratory birds. So they've done a lot of work to protect forested habitat for all of the warblers and other songbirds that fly all the way to Central and South America for the winter. And so Protecting the birds has improved the health of the rivers. And so the Russell Fork River, I was just bowled over by how beautiful it was. And I was the only person there swimming on a beautiful summer day. And like I moved to Kentucky from Portland, Oregon last summer in Portland, anywhere you try to go swimming, you're going to be swimming with a couple thousand other people. It's going to be hard to find a parking spot. There's just so many people who've moved there. And it's grown so much that all of the places that used to be like quiet swimming holes are packed out now. And to go to Eastern Kentucky and have this beautiful riverside swimming hole to myself and have it be clean and see freshwater animals there was just amazing Mm. and surprising to me.
0: That's great. That's great. I had a chance um, about year and a half, almost two years ago, now to swim in the Bright Angel Creek um, at, and hiking through the Grand Canyon on a rim to rim to rim hike with my son. And that was one of the most memorable moments. Of course, it's like the water's about 34, 35 degrees in, in March. Um, but it was we were, we were prepared for that. and uh, that can be, that's just one of the funnest things to do, is to be alone in, in nature and have, have that direct experience, right? Full immersion.
1: Yeah, I I was lucky enough to um, be able to float through the Grand Canyon a couple of times mm. after motorized season. And it was just beautiful to come to a spot where you can just swim in the Colorado at the bottom of the Grand Canyon by yourself yeah. in the freezing water. <laughs> <But> <laughs> right. Those experiences are really beautiful.
0: Right. Um I've always wondered um, and I wonder what your take on this is like as as um you know and this sort of relates to the idea of of one theory I have about how to deal with the sort of mental toll and the emotional drain that it takes on on us to be engaged with these issues and, and kind of losing, but you know losing ground continually, but how do we stay engaged with those and one is to sort of expand our view of time. Um, I interviewed a guest in season one of the Soul of Life, uh, Marsha Bunerud. She's a geologist and a physicist, and she wrote a book called Timefulness. It was one of the two books I took into the Grand Canyon with my son. Well, actually, I was on a Kindle, so I had probably hundreds of books, but one of the the two books that I read to my son, who was 12 at the time, uh, when we were hiking under the stars, her book Timefulness, and she talks about the idea of really understanding uh, geological time um, and putting us in perspective um, and how even though we're we're cre- creating such problems that you know we only think on a 60 to 100 year timescale and we may not really be clear about how our impact, I mean, when, when you think about a glacial period or early earth formation and how devastating those were and, and how life comes back. And so, you know, it's, it's not to say that we shouldn't be taking all the measures we can to stop the degradation of the environment, but it's also like we may be, you know, it's, it's helpful to have a little bit of humility about, you know, millennia, right? And how species may evolve and, um, and change in re- response to our toxicity. I mean, the earth has been very toxic many, many other times. In fact, is toxic to, it's always toxic at some level in some place.
1: The, the Grand Canyon, that timefulness is right in your face, right? Like the Vishnu schist is rock that you can see. That's a billion years old. How does the human mind even grapple that? I mean, that's when policy becomes so frustrating, like in some species decisions for Endangered Species Act protection, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service will look out 15 or 30 years and they'll say, oh, there'll be two of this animal left in 15 years, so it doesn't need to be protected and Mm. as a biologist and just as a human i'm just like what are they thinking like you can't look out 15 years or even 30 years and make a decision about say Mm. it's still going to be here it's fine like education doesn't work like that retirement doesn't work like that it doesn't even make common sense
0: right how do you deal with frustration and your colleagues and peers um uh and 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 avoid burnout, right? Mentally and spiritually. How what, what kind of resources do you use or, or kind of practices help you stay, you know, engaged and stay hopeful? Please take the time now to subscribe to the Soul of Life wherever you're listening. Give it a thumbs up or write a positive review.
1: So I, I deal with this on a personal level, but also as a science communicator. Like my job is to talk to people about extinction is a mm-hmm. bummer of a topic and i started it's like a out- funeral
0: director almost <laughs> sadly.
1: Is. And a couple years ago i was giving a talk i like it hurts me so much it hurts my heart when species go extinct even if it's a little species that lived in a cave that i'll never get to see i feel like it had the right to be there and it was there over deep time and now it's gone because of changes that we've made and I feel like their stories don't get told and I feel like it's my responsibility to share their stories. So I was giving a talk a couple of years ago and I was putting up pictures of recently endangered extinct species and telling their stories and people were walking out of my talks because it was too depressing for them. And I realized that I, like I do need to tell their stories, but I have to communicate about extinction in a way that doesn't cause people to walk out or look away because there's a, there's so much sadness and overwhelm in the world that I have to get people to care and show that this is happening, but also make them feel empowered to make a difference. So yes, species are going extinct, but yes, we can make a difference. So I always try to make my talks hopeful and empowering so that people feel like they can make a difference and not just dwell in the sadness that comes with extinction. And, and I mean, honestly, I struggled with the sadness personally. I, it becomes paralyzing. And I, I saw, especially when I was younger and was reading silent spring and our stolen future and just it is overwhelming to as an undergraduate, to learn about everything that is happening. And and the world is even worse <laughs> now in some ways in terms of climate and extinction than it was a decade ago. But I saw Sin- Sandra Stein Graber give a talk. She was talking about cancer and I asked her how she dealt with despair. And she said, despair is a luxury. Like we, we are in a fight. We have to get out and fight. And, and, that I just reflected on that. Like somebody said, hope is a verb with its sleeves rolled up and, and action, like action is the antidote to despair. And so when I do feel overwhelmed, I just try to think of something that I can do. And I love gardening. I love plants and bugs. So like I plant a ton of things. And when I'm super bummed out, I just go outside and look at my plants and look for birds or bugs. I turn to the natural world for solace and, and to other people who are doing this work, like we, the center for biological diversity, we had, um, an elegy ceremony for the 23 species that were declared extinct last month. We had an evening program. We lit candles for them. We told their stories. We grieved together in community and that was incredibly helpful and healing to to work with other people who feel that grief, but who are also right. committed to making a difference but it's right. it 's an right. everyday question how how you deal with yeah. the oh, climate overwhelm extinction overwhelm and and not let despair take over
0: right right well you you mentioned something really key that that i 've known from my experience in trauma work and and specifically hearing and working with people who have who are still recovering from the, the Holocaust legacy, legacy of the Jewish Holocaust in their family, um, because it's so overwhelming and so devastating and so horrific um, that one of the keys is really having a spiritual understanding of being connected to one another and that that sense of not being alone in the suffering. Meaning that if I turn away from the suffering, um, I'm not neglecting it. Other people are, are holding it. Museums are hold, holding it and books are holding it. And our, our culture, our collective uh, minds are holding it, and so it's not my res- it's not my one nervous system's responsibility to to hold all of the grief that my thinking mind might think I'm capable of holding. My nervous system can't, so that's what we that's what our communities are for, and our institutions, and our families, and that. And the other thing that stands out for me is uh, uh, I interviewed Dr. Neil Shubin. He wrote a book called my, The Inner Fish, uh, Your Inner Fish, and he said, of course, I was asking about. Um, being in the Arctic and finding fossils and the bittersweet kind of story that's unfolding there for an, ar- an archaeologist and a paleontologist, being able to find a lot more fossils because all the ice is melting. Um, and, uh, and so I was asking him, you know, does that does that get him down to sort of see what's happening and the way it's being militarized and sort of people are moving, countries are moving into the Arctic spaces? Um, he said, yes, absolutely. And the other thing he said, is, but as a scientist, This is like a golden era. He said the last 10 years, the last five years, every year there is a breakthrough, like a century marker breakthrough in science and some tool, some ability to give him curiosity. So he said, if he stays curious, um, you know, even about watching things that are, seem to be going down, like just to stay curious and say, I don't really know what's going on. What, you know, like you said, kind of keep looking at the, the next thing. What, what is the story that's unfolding? Keep asking what's happening it's as opposed to settling into okay i know what's happening it's the difference between like a religion and a spiritual practice like i've got a lot of rules on the one hand i know everything and i'm open to what i don't know and you know that inspires me or something like that
1: yeah i so in in kentucky right now the monarch butterflies are supposed to be in mexico like they're supposed to arrive today for the day of the dead ceremonies. And I still have monarchs in my yard and it's going to be 27 degrees in a couple of nights and they're going to die. And that makes Mm. me very sad. And I was talking to a colleague about it and she was like, well, the ones that are pushing the envelope are the ones that are going to help the species adapt in terms of climate change. So just try to be glad that they're pushing the envelope. And she reframed that for me. And helped me see, okay, you guys are gonna die this week, but you're pushing the resiliency of the species. You're pushing the the outer edge of change.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Some of this is bigger than than us, right? The story we're in, uh as the human story is bigger than one person. And so um yeah, it but the, the the fight is important and you you're a big part of that. And and what are some current things that your center is working on legislatively or Uh, at the advocacy level that that you think is the most important right now
1: so at the the most macro macro global level happening right now we're at the climate conference the conference of the parties we're pushing for a lot more action on climate change from the united states and the world will be at the the biological diversity conference of the parties next year asking for a zero extinction ask like right now the Convention on Biological Diversity, the target they've set for extinction is a reduction in the rate, and we want zero extinctions. We want to see an end to human-caused extinction. So we're part of like the high ambition coalition pushing for stronger asks from them. In terms of United States legislation, we're asking President Biden and or the Secretary of the Interior to declare the extinction crisis a national emergency. And this would grant the federal government a lot of authority to take action to safeguard wildlife populations, especially on federal lands, so that public land is managed for carbon sequestration and recreation and to benefit endangered species and maintain healthy wildlife populations instead of for fossil fuel extraction, logging, mining, all of the things, grazing, all the things that happen on on public lands right now. We're also pushing a piece of legislation called the Extinction Prevention Act. This would provide funding to recover the most endangered groups of animals and plants in the country. Plants in Hawaii, Southwest desert fish, butterflies, and freshwater mussels. Because endangered species do not get enough funding in this country. So um, the Fish and Wildlife Service needs more money to put them on the list and also to recover them once they are on the list. Recovery is funded at about 3%. Before it's needed. And that's just not enough. We need to make protecting wildlife a national priority because our health and well being is tied to the health and well being of our wildlife populations, whether or not we realize that.
0: Yeah, say more about that, Tiara, because I was going to say if, if you're a person below the poverty line and you're working, I mean, stress is existential for you because you don't have time to think about whether there's too many bags in the waste management system plastic bags or something how does it matter to a person who's struggling right and and you you spoke for your own experience of poverty growing up how does it matter
1: i mean the systems that perpetuate poverty are the same systems that are killing endangered species like all of the causes of injustice are intertwined and so i really don't like the dichotomy of jobs versus environment or Poor people can't care about endangered species. I think that I think those are their faults. We need an economy that provides a living for people, so that no one is living in poverty. Like we have to fight climate change, biodiversity loss, and poverty all together. All all ships rise on on the tide of justice. And so, really, it's about. Creating a healthy, livable country and planet for poor people. So there is no poverty. So we're not making decisions that jeopardize the survival of wildlife and the like Cancer Alley, Appalachia, the other places where we're committing ecocide, you know, we're killing the ecosystem, we're killing the people that live there too. environmental like environmental justice and food justice food systems all of it is just so connected and one of the problems is that we see everything in silos when it shouldn't be siloed but by making creeks cleaner by making rivers cleaner by using less pesticides we're also benefiting the people who live there whose health is being undermined by the the very systems that perpetuate poverty and, and extinction
0: Recently, I saw an interview with the Prime Minister of Bhutan, which is over in the Himalayas, next to India, next to Nepal—the
1: happiest um, country in the world, right? Yeah, <laughs> have apparently.
0: <laughs> yeah, you know his his comment was, "We don't have a gross domestic product," you know, and and you know, a critic would say, "Well, look, they they're not an industrialized country; they they're they've got to find some other way to to make their mark." But they're a spiritual, you know, led country, and most of them practicing Buddhism is my understanding. And so um yeah the 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 impact that they have the awareness that they have on the environment that they're he wants they talk about the gross domestic happiness of the people, not not the product. He said, you know, if you make products, like does that make you happy? And it's a question I think that everyone who Reaches a point in their career, asks themselves, "Right, what am I doing? Why am I doing what I'm doing? Is it just you know, on? Am I just on a conveyor belt?"
1: No, we, um, we need new metrics at the global level. The UN put out a report this year. It was a. The- first joint report from the climate program and the biodiversity program. And it it said what I just said, we have to fight climate change, biodiversity and poverty together. But one of the things it said is that we need new metrics. Like we can't just measure happiness, success and well-being by gross domestic product, by right. amount of stuff produced, amount of energy burned. It doesn't, it doesn't work like that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's not how the human mind works. We don't get happiness by doing more. Sometimes it's doing less. And and focusing on what you have, right? Appreciating what you have, protecting what you have. Um, are there any other projects you want to speak about? Are you thinking about? Um, are you going to repeat the the river jumping uh, escapade? Absolutely. <laughs> you going to do that?
1: Absolutely. I so when I moved from the West Coast to the East Coast, one of my goals was to get in rivers and see the diversity here, like the the Southeast has the highest diversity of freshwater animals in the whole country. So Mm. I wanted to see hellbenders. I wanted to see like freshwater mussels and their amazing lures and the colorful fish. And, and I just drove around jumping in so many rivers that I didn't get to spend enough time in the beautiful woods. Um, And so next summer I'm going to ask people, Hey, where are the beautiful woods? And I'm just going to spend a lot of time in them and, and get to see and get to see some of these creatures.
0: Great. It sounds like a really worthwhile adventure and one that would hopefully bring you in, in contact with something you love and give you the energy to keep doing what you're doing, which is amazing, amazing work. Tiara Curry at the Center for Biological Diversity Thank you for being on the Soul of Life.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for this conversation.
0: Hey, I've started a community for Soul of Life fans interested in talking about episodes or getting more information about some of my teaching on IFS, mindfulness and relationship growth. Head on over to community.soul of life show to get access to this group of really cool people just like you who care about the show and want to talk about episodes or or hear more, or get access to courses and and support each other through life that's what this is all about please leave an itunes rating for the show and subscribe now wherever you listen to get more soul in your life
1: i like it and it's not
0: harsh to
1: my eardrop all right i will go